Well, take your Bibles and let's turn once again to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17, 18, and 19. Page 963, if you're using the Bibles here. Well, we've uh, come to the end of this journey through 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul, writing to his younger partner in ministry, Timothy, the shepherd and leader of the church in Ephesus in the first century. And uh, kind of interestingly, in this last chapter, a, a couple of times, much of this chapter is devoted to Paul talking about money or financial things. And in this section today, he specifically is addressing Christians who are wealthy or wealthier. Um, I know sometimes it can seem self-serving for pastors to talk about money. I get that because uh, we are, of course, supported through offerings. And uh, yet I'm real grateful that we are part of a church family that we just kind of expect to go through the Word of God, right? We just, whatever is there, and that's what we, we look at next. But I do understand why there's sometimes a resistance because it seems like there have been many religious leaders who have been guilty of greed and sometimes outright financial scandal. And that, in fact, has been what, by God's inspiration, what Paul began to talk about back in verse 6. Remember, there's a lot of talk in, uh, of Paul in this book about false teachers. And one thing that false teachers are often guilty of is this greed issue. Look at the end of verse 6. Who think that godliness is a means of financial gain. So, I mean, you, could, you, can, you can leverage this, this spiritual thing for, for money is what they taught. And so Paul taught just the opposite in that next paragraph, 6 through 10, saying, you know, we need to be financially content because it's actually the love of money that leads to all kinds of spiritual problems and, in fact, disaster and ruin. Well, now as we come to verse 17, Paul specifically addresses those who are more wealthy, and it's, I guess, for each of us to decide to what, in what way this applies to us personally. Let's read the entire passage. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, Command them, Timothy, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So the first of three essential principles here is the principle to be humble about your finances. Don't be arrogant if you are wealthier. He addresses the rich in this present world. First of all, notice the contrast in verse 17 to rich in the present world, or verse 19, a firm foundation for the coming world or the coming age. So he's saying that as, as, as followers of Christ, we can be focused financially on now or the coming age, referring to eternity, 
when we are in heaven. So where will your focus be? It's kind of interesting that Paul specifically addresses the wealthier. This is kind of unique. There's a lot of teaching about uh, financial things in Scripture. But it's kind of unique that he's talking to specifically those who are wealthier. Why would that be? And it seems that one of the most obvious reasons is that Timothy was a, a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus was the, one of the wealthiest cities in the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons for that was its strategic location on the Aegean Sea from where you could do great business trading to cities within that region like Athens or out to Antioch or all the way to Rome, access that you had by water in the Mediterranean. And so people would come to Ephesus to find work and to prosper. And it was kind of like the ancient Chicago, which, you know, as it begins to grow and it's kind of this this port city that, that has all this business, it just attracts more and more and more. And so it grew prosperous in that way. In fact, archaeologists have found some very luxurious condominiums just off of the city square in Ephesus called the Houses on the Slopes which had a lot of modern conveniences. If you're thinking back 2,000 years ago, they had running hot and cold water because there was a series of clay pipes that was circulating hot water and even providing hot water heat. It was, as you can see, had had atriums and ovens, mosaics uh, on the floor, uh, frescoes or these paintings on the wall. And so there was a lot of wealth in Ephesus So it's not surprising that among the the church in Ephesus, there were also those who were wealthier. It's kind of interesting to contrast what took place in Ephesus economically with what took place in Philippi or Macedonia. Uh, if, If you later on will refer to 2 Corinthians where Paul addresses the Macedonians, that's where Philippi was located, and speaks of their extreme poverty. And so if you're reading through Ephesians and, and Ephesians and Philippians, you know, they all are basically teaching the same principles. And if you add in what Paul told the, the people of, of, of or refer, how he described the people of Macedonia in Corinthians, you realize that they were at different, very different places economically, and yet they were hearing the same principles, the same principles even financially about generosity because it really does apply across the board to whatever our situation is. But in God's sovereign timing, here we are today as American Christians on Thanksgiving weekend, experiencing blessings and and really from kind of our own uh, economy, if you will, where we're located. I I took a a quick glance this week at some of those statistics. I'm not sharing them, but uh, statistics of how the US, U.S. economy and wealth, average wealth, compares to the rest of the world, which of course we're were uh, on the, in the top percentile there, or even how Ozaki County and some of our local communities compare to the rest of the United States. And, and, and the purpose for, for, for even thinking that way is not that we should feel guilty, but that we should feel responsible, as we'll learn, what stewardship is really about. In spite of that all, I know that there are many legitimate financial concerns among us, but 
you kind of have to all decide, we have to decide for ourselves how this term, those who are rich in the present age, how that applies to us personally. But here's the first principle. Don't be arrogant. Don't look, don't feel superior. It's one of the temptations of wealth is that we would feel superior to those who don't have as much and look down on them. Proverbs 28, 11. The rich are wise in their own eyes, said the wealthiest man ever. He understood that temptation King Solomon did as he wrote Proverbs. Or this one in Ezekiel is, is, is very fascinating. Uh, a prophetic word of Ezekiel to the king of Tyre, a wicked king of Tyre. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud because of your wealth. Now, this, this is, this is um, actually true that the king of Tyre was a, a brilliant man as a trader, as, a, as an overseer of the economy of Tyre. And Tyre was actually the, the wealthiest city of the ancient kingdom of Phoenicia and for a lot of the same reasons as Ephesus. Now, we're in the Old Testament in Ezekiel, and so it's like six centuries earlier, but Tyre was also a port city that did excellent trade, and particularly because of one other key factor that it had. One encyclopedia says, Tyre built its wealth by developing and trading a purple dye obtained from a seashell called murex, and purple became the color of royalty in the ancient world. So, as you think about it, was the king of Tyre rich because he was smart? Yes, but did the king of Tyre put those murex shells there? And did the king of Tyre personally discover the purple dye thing? God had placed him exactly where he was, that he was even born in Tyre of Phoenicia, or that he would have the, the, uh, maybe the personality, the intelligence, or more likely the, the privilege of growing up in a kingly family that he could be. That, do you see how everything ultimately comes from God's sovereignty? And he wasted it all on pride. And so he became known for his pride. And what's interesting is if you keep reading Ezekiel 28, that, that passage we just looked at, you find that the king of Tyre is actually an illustration of Satan. Satan, who sinned the first sin of the universe. And what was the first sin of the universe? Pride or arrogance in his rebellion against God. So pride puts us in terrible company yeah, pride about wealth puts us in terrible company. The point is simple. Don't take credit for any measure of wealth. Don't look down on those who have less because any measure of wealth that God gives you is to both bless you and test you. Wealth comes as blessing and testing. We can use God-given wealth to our own glory and selfish purposes, which would be pride. We can use God-given wealth for God's purposes and God's 
glory, which would be, here's the key word, stewardship. Because actually arrogance is the opposite of stewardship. Arrogance says, I deserve what I have. Stewardship is when we say to God, I manage what you own. When we say, I deserve what I have, we're actually implying that those who have less deserve less. And do we really want to go there to think that they deserve less because of what? Who they are or... So stewardship is that we see ourselves as managing what God owns. God owns it all. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. So if there is anything material, God owns it. Or, glance back at even verse 7. For we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. It's really all monopoly money. Because when the game is over, it all goes back in the box, doesn't it? So stewardship is, okay, while I'm on this earth, I manage what God actually owns. And it creates, stewardship mindset creates a sense of humility, or humility creates stewardship. It's that God enabled me to be healthy enough to work hard. God gave me enough intelligence to be able to, 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 to study or to, to train for, for whatever it is that we do. God enabled me to, have, to know the right people to get the job or to get the promotion or to, to, to even get the wisdom or insight or advice to know how to invest or, or to be born into the family or have the opportunities. The list is endless of what God did. These are all God things. And so the question is, how can I be a manager of that which God has entrusted with me? So, so steward, stewards think so differently about wealth. There's a humility, uh, there's a gratitude, and there's this sense of, I need to be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it's required of students that one be found faithful. So first principle is to be humble, not arrogant. Second principle is to trust God, not wealth. Or, or nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He didn't use the word trust even, though we, it's a parallel concept. He didn't say, don't put your trust in wealth. He actually says, don't put your hope in it. The word hope, has to, it's a future word. It's a, it means... Don't put your future expectation in wealth. Don't look for your security to be in your wealth. Now, wealth is part of, even Proverbs talks about wealth being part of, of, of security, but it teaches us to be wise. It teaches us to get, Proverbs teaches us to get, get financial, to get counsel. It teaches us to be like the ant and to save away, Proverbs 6, 8, and save away for, for winter. These are all biblical concepts, but they says, but don't put your hope in that because it's so uncertain. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, read the, the, the parable that Jesus told about the, the farmer who, who was doing so well. He had to keep building bigger and bigger barns just to store it, and he, he kind of sat back and said, I have plenty to last me forever, you know, for so long. And that night he up and died, right? 
So, if nothing else, death teaches us that uh, money is temporary and, and it cannot be a, a, a security for us. There's many other ways that money disappears. Solomon liked to talk about money quite a bit and give us God's wisdom on it. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust in your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone. For they will surely, I like this metaphor, they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Anybody have money like that? <laughs> it's, it's always been remarkable. You, you look at the number uh, on your paycheck and it seems so big, so where did it fly? <laughs> where did it go? Or, you, or you, you, you look at an investment, it looks so, so certain, like, you know, but then it doesn't work out. Or you even watch your retirement count grow and it seems to go so well, and then comes the re- recession. Those who trust in their riches will fall. Uh, I saw a Wikipedia article this week called List of Recessions in, in the United States. They list 48 recessions in U.S. history. And many of us here can remember many of them. I can remember the energy crisis of the 70s. Some of you remember lines at the pump, you know, kind of circling around the, the block. Some of you, uh, you remember the savings and loan crisis of the 90s or the dot-com bubble, if you got caught up in that, or the 9-11, or what's now kind of called the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009, major financial institutions that, uh, that, that crumbled, and uh, automotive industry being bailed out, and then COVID last year. We, we only know that there will be a next. Those who trust in riches will fall. The good news is, that while we cannot trust in riches, we can't expect them to secure our future because it could all fly away. You can trust your future financially to God. Put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. There is someone who will guarantee your future. There is someone who will take care of you. He is very generous. He loves you. He provides and not just so often to get by, but to enjoy, to enjoy, because he loves you. He's the, he's the owner. Do you realize that means that the pressure is on the owner, not the manager? Businesses that are struggling, managers, they're, you know, they're in there, they, they, they feel it, but who is the one that has all the money invested? Who can lose the whole business? It's the, it's the owner. The pressure is on the owner more than the manager. So we need to learn to let him carry the pressure. Priscilla and I can enjoy remembering, remembering some of our early years, especially when we would encounter some major expenses that we truly didn't know where the money was coming from. So we just pray and say, God, you know, what, what, what are you going to do? See, something that stewards can learn to pray is kind of unusual prayers like, Lord, your transmission went out. Your, your, your engine blew, Lord. The roof leaks on your house. Because when we have a, ownership, a stewardship mindset, we can trust 
the owner to care. It's, it's freeing to think like stewards when things seem to be going badly financially, but it's also wonderfully humbling and rewarding when things are prosperous to think like a steward because you know that God actually wants you to enjoy what he provides for you. Thank you, Lord, for this, this nice home. Thank you the roof doesn't leak. Thank you that you got a job that pays the bills. Thank you that we've not only avoided hunger, but we've experienced pumpkin pie, bacon, elephant tracks, and broccoli with cheese sauce. God richly provides us with everything. Do do you see God as a generous father? A father who delights to give good gifts because the thing is about, as a parent, as you're thinking about buying your children gifts, you think personally, what would that child enjoy? And so while one might appreciate a, a ball and another one a Barbie, it's because you're a parent, you know what they would enjoy. God delights to do that. Priscilla and I were watching a, a show uh, recently that was set in Germany. And so all these scenes are, are kind of you know, going through the streets of Germany. And, and we just fondly remember this special trip we were able to take in 2015 going to Germany and, and experiencing that because, because God knew that that would be something really special for us. So Thanksgiving week is obviously a t- good time to be thinking of the good gifts of, of God. Uh, but there's a kind of a nagging question that comes as you read this. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And especially maybe because we live in Ozaki County, the modern version of Ephesus or Tyre of Phoenicia, Phoenicia. And that is, how do you know when it's a selfish indulgence or if it's something richly that God has given you to enjoy? Have you experienced that tension? When is it a selfish indulgence and when is it something that God has provided for our enjoyment? Some of you actually expect me to answer that. But that's the thing. When you are a steward relating to an owner or a child relating to a father, that is a personal relationship. That is something you talk to the owner about. If God is personal, it won't be the same for everyone. Otherwise, how could you ever explain the difference between God's gifts to somebody in Ozaki County compared to South Sudan? You just can't. He's the owner. God's stewards should not be so foolish as to think that the answer to that question is simply, can I afford it? Now, can I I afford it is a really good question to eliminate some things. Because if you can't afford it, it's not God's blessing. It's you trying to bless yourself. And that's just going to cause trouble. But if you can afford it, you still have to ask the question, is this God's blessing? Is it something, a, a, a blessing to enjoy or something that's more of a selfish indulgence, indulgence? And then we have to just simply seek God's wisdom and say, God, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delightful tension that can draw you close to God in asking and 
understanding his will for you. Be humble. Don't be arrogant. Trust God. Don't put your hope in uncertain wealth. Third principle is be generous. Be generous. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. As you're talking, Timothy, to the wealthier Christians in and, 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 and Ephesus, and you, you, you have more of them than most churches, it seems. So command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Generosity is the most foundational way to express that we understand stewardship. Generosity is how we say, God, I understand you own it all, and I am trusting you to guide me. Because if you are thinking like an owner, and you're putting your hope in riches, then by all means, don't give very much away. Because that's your security. That's what's going to make you happy. So, so don't give something away that you might need someday. Don't give something away that, that, that could, could give you something better someday that will bring you more happiness. But if you're a steward, you think about those things differently. As the, he's the owner. And so I want to express to you, God, I know that you are the rich one. And I trust you to meet my needs and bless me as abundantly as you choose, you decide how much wealth you want to give me. I only have to decide how much I'm going to give. So I, I don't have to, have to worry about how much you give me and thus how much I have. You will decide that, but I decide simply how much I give. Now, it's interesting in verse 18 that there are uh, two forms of giving. Did you notice that? There's the serving by giving time, and then there's the generosity of giving financially. Command them, which one is first? Do you see that? Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds. Command who? Command those who are wealthy in the church to do good and be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. It's not like, oh, you have more money, your job is to give money. But actually, those who are wealthier don't just give money, give time. Which is harder for you? You know, in times of prosperity, it's really sometimes easier to write the check than to show up and, and serve. Because uh, time often becomes a very precious commodity. How can I ever give God the time? How do I give people uh, the time in fact, it's even deeper than that. How do I get out of my comfort zone to give time to maybe listen to somebody and really take interest in them? To serve, to show up, to get my hands dirty, to, to, to teach, prepare. Because the time and the effort. I remember hearing about a Christian CEO of a corporation who we presume would be quite well off, and he may have been uh, very, I would assume even he was a, a very generous giver, but his real passion for ministry was teaching fifth grade boys Sunday school. He understood stewardship. He understood, verse 18, that giving money and giving time are parallel ways we express stewardship of what God has given us. So start with that. Get your hands dirty and then give generously as well. And I know sometimes even just in, in terms of a, of a church, the, 
in times of prosperity, sometimes there's plenty of money for ministry, but not people to do the ministry. And I'm grateful that, that Open Door has, has always been striving to be both giving sacrificially as well as serving. Uh, we wouldn't have had that, uh, that brunch today if there wasn't sacrificial giving of time and service. But then be generous and willing to share. And that's talking about financial giving. The word generous is actually uh, a Greek compound word, which is like you put two words together, like flashlight or lightning bug, or put two words together that's the word giving with the word well. Give, give well or give abundantly, give above. So give generously. And then it says, and willing to share the koinonia term of, it's the fellowship. It's the idea that your giving is others-centered. You want somebody else to benefit. So God gave it to you, and you worked for it, but it was yours to manage, but you now want somebody else, others-conscious. That's what stewardship is then, to figure out a giving plan. And, and keep in mind that, that, that managers always have to plan. So it's not a haphazard thing. It's giving is, a, is, a, is a, a process where you think through and plan what God wants you to do. Who, who, are, who are we helping and for what purpose and, and for what, what priority has God, what, what, what priority of God has, has been flowing through me that I would want to give towards? Giving reflects our priorities. So we have to ask the how and the who and the when questions. In Old Testament days, frankly, it was easier in terms of planning because God's law stipulated giving the tithe, right? You've heard of that. The tithe is the tenth, and it seemed that there were at least two tithes per year. So if you were part of the nation of Israel, that's just what you had to do. That's frankly a little bit more like taxes, but in addition to that, there also was the free will offering. So as you came and brought your, your sacrifice and, and so forth, you could bring free will offerings. And that's, that's leaning more into what we experience principle-wise in the New Testament. The free will offerings, voluntary, from the heart. But God taught that first by requiring and then the free will aspect. It's a little bit of what we maybe do as families to try to teach our children. We, we, uh, when our kids were young, we would require them to, when they got money from grandpa and grandma or whatever, and so now it was, quote, their money, we had them put it in three containers, jars or whatever, give, save, and spend. Trying to communicate that money is not just for spending, that there's give, save and spend. So we gave them percentages and required them uh, to, to follow that. Plus it also taught percentages for math. So got that accomplished. God did that kind of for the children of Israel to teach the principles. But here we are in the New Testament and we are not required to give a tithe. We're not told this is exactly how much you should give. It's like we're living in a more mature age. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us to guide us though still based on a lot of the same principles, if you will, parallel to the Old Testament. 
So what does the New Testament teach as principles to help guide givings if we're giving if we're stewards? I'm going to share four passages and principles. Uh, some of you may have seen this in some of our uh, materials as a church as well. But here's the first one. Give voluntarily. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So it's not duty. It's not a number somebody assigns to you. It's not coercion and arm twisting. It's not guilt. But it's, what is God working in my heart to give? Secondly, give regularly and proportionately. 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. There's not a number, but it's talking about proportionate. What, is, what would be appropriate? Something that, that fits you. Three, give sacrificially. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. This is that reference to the church in Macedonia that though they had very little, they were the ones that were giving so generously. Jesus, you may know this, remember this occasion where Jesus is with the disciples at the temple entrance where people were throwing in money in the chest and this, and this woman gives the two small coins and Jesus remarks to the disciples, that woman gave more than these people who dumped in a lot of money because why? It was a proportionately more sacrificial gift. And finally, give privately. Jesus said that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So it's not about the applause and who, who knows and uh, uh, a plaque someplace, but rather it's, it's a you and God thing. When he's the owner and you are the steward, that's, that's, the, only, that's the accountability uh, for forgiving. And, and for your information, only the church treasurer and the administrative assistant or secretary would even know what people give uh, here at the church. So if stewardship means managing God's money, then we need to, to plan. There'll probably be some math involved. And there'll be some tension. Again, it's finding the sweet spot of enjoying what God gives and being generous. So is this something you have to ask yourself, is this something God wants me to enjoy, to spend more money over here for something that is a blessing from him to enjoy? Or is this something where I'm supposed to be generous and, and, and restrain myself on, the gener- on, on being generous to myself, to be generous to somebody else? And you know you're not going to get an answer, right? <laughs> not for me. That's something personal, you and God, to know, is this something that God is enabling me to enjoy or something he wants me to share? Which tells you that this, this is the neat thing about the, the ownership, the, the stewardship concept is that we are forced to be talking to God about this stuff. So that money now becomes constantly spiritual and what is God teaching me through through either my need or my abundance or my decisions about giving, about doing. And, and so we're constantly needing to do that. We need to be thinking about it, praying about it, and ideally that husband and wife would come together with their own perspectives, what God is teaching them to make decisions together about these important stewardship principles. This passage doesn't answer every question about why people, some have more than others. And that's okay because that's an ownership issue. 
it leaves us with the uncomfortable question of why does God allow some to have a lot and some to have so little? Remember last week we had this big Christmas tree stack of boxes going to Operation Christmas Child? Almost 300 boxes from our church and we send them off. They're going to country, different countries and villages and, and these children are opening up a box that's going to thrill them that would probably disappoint most kids in America, frankly. I mean, that's all you're getting on? Dad, that's all we got? How do, you, how do we... Why does God allow that disparity? We don't have to answer that. That is an owner issue. We are stewards, so the question we have to answer is, am I being faithful? It's required of stewards that, a, that one be found faithful. See, I kind of imagine Timothy getting this letter from Paul. Someday someone walks up to where Timothy lived there in Ephesus and, and he opens it up and he reads through this thing. He's maybe preparing for what he's going to teach on Sunday. And, uh, oh yeah. Yep, we really need to talk about this. We need to talk about, are we arrogant or, or humble when we have a lot of, are we trusting in God or are we trusting in our money? And, 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 and are, are we able to make the decisions of what we keep and, and enjoy as God's blessing and what we give away? And so he would teach it just as we've hopefully done this morning. Three principles then about prosperity, but Paul doesn't stop there because he's this, this spirit-inspired coach who always gives motivation along with the principles. The principles kind of you know, dig inside of us and make us decide and, and work through things. But they said, I'm going to give you some encouragement. So three principles, now two forms of encouragement. Verse 19, in this way, that is, as you, as you are uh, uh, humble and trusting God and generous, in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. If, if we live for the coming age with eternal priorities... That it gives us the motivation to think like stewards. If you recall from last week, that was the reminder back in verse 14. The Lord Jesus Christ is appearing. He's coming back. And then we're going to be with the Lord, verse, verse 16, 15 and 16, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's immortal and he dwells in unapproachable light and no one can see him. And so, so, Keeping that in mind, the coming age, let's make sure that we invest in what matters eternally. And it seems that by, by this expression, laying up treasures, that he's surely reflecting the words of Jesus that Pastor Seth read earlier this morning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure and the heart always, always go together. Lay up for yourselves. Where, what are the treasures in heaven? I don't know. I haven't been there either. I don't know what treasures in heaven all entail, but I can know from this that they're permanent. That while this stuff is temporary and we leave it all in the box... Whatever that is, is got value forever in heaven. And that it says that somehow these treasures are personal. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves. Paul says, in this way you lay up treasures for themselves. What is that? 
somehow there is some kind of a, of a personal dividend or benefit or reward of enjoyment or glorifying God, something that, that we can personally appreciate forever. Again, what the treasure reward is, I, I don't know. We just trust the owner. But it's not only the eternal benefits. The, the last line said that there are the, the godly servant, the, a, a steward-minded servant of God is able to enjoy something more now so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And that's talking about how we begin to now enjoy the meaning and the significance of what we do here. It's the same phrase actually from verse 12 last week where it says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. We've talked often about how you, when you put your faith in Christ, you put your faith in Christ for salvation, your eternal life begins when you believe in Christ. And so it, here we are, you believe, you know, 2021, uh, but you, you live the rest of this life till the day you die and eternity in heaven starts then, but etern- eternal life began here. And so he's saying in the same way you can actually take hold of or embrace or enjoy the significance of an eternal perspective between here and here. And so you really are, are winning both ways. This is the same principle as last week. So I think there's this great uh, quote by C.S. Lewis. Just wanna, it's worth repeating about aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, aim at earth, and you will get neither. So live with eternal benefits, and you actually experience the significance of those eternal things now. But if you just aim for now, this becomes empty, and there's no eternal worth to where you focused your life. So as we conclude Paul's thoughts here, and he somehow thought it was important that we understand stewardship as he finished this off. And the final verses we, we touched already another time where uh, we were looking at the, the, the false teachers. So guard what's been entrusted to you and all these opposing ideas. But the, he said somehow it's very personal. Finances are so personal that we, we, we do so much spiritual thinking through what's in our wallet, what's in our, what's in our accounts. It causes us to, to think about God and our heart so many different ways. So let's ask four questions. In what ways am I financially wealthy? So this is just a personal thing. You and God, you know, everybody's situation, bottom lines and income, everything's different, every one of us. So where, where is the Spirit speaking to you that, you know, this is an area where you have something materially, wealth-wise, that God has given you? What is it? Be thankful is the first issue. But ask the honest question, am I guilty of arrogance about something financial or material? Like, look what I have. I deserve this. I, I earned this. I worked for this. Yes. Do we have the humility of stewardship. In what areas is God asking me to trust him financially? Is, no matter where you're at financially, it always seems like there's something you've got to trust him about. And finally, what is the next step for me to live more generously? 
Is it, is it actually praying about it? Um, is it a conversation with your spouse? Is it some math where you figure some things out? And then the, the prayer and thought about where and who and when and how and, and what would be involved in that. But and that's the way we can take hold of eternal life, take hold of the life that really matters because now we haven't excluded money and material things from our spiritual plan with God, but rather it's become a core part of who we are and how we honor the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we uh, know that you are watching over us in every way, our health, our families, our jobs, and we perhaps even this past week have uh, been alerted again to ways that you've blessed us and we've thanked you more intentionally or specifically than other times, and that's good. Lord, help us to uh, realize that we are called upon to be faithful, that, that, that with um, abundance, when we have abundance, comes responsibility. And even in poverty, your word says that you work to give us opportunities to be generous. So Lord, wherever we find ourselves and however we evaluate our situations, Lord, I pray that, that our finances will become an area in which we, we uh, get really honest with you and, and struggle with uh, the, the good issues of, of selfishness versus generosity and, and, uh, and yet would have that grace and freedom to enjoy benefits and blessings that you provide. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.